Well, good morning again. I just feel like it's a distinct pleasure and honor to be able to speak to you again. I don't get to do it that often, but it's, it's always an honor to me to be able to do it. Uh, also, just uh, it being Palm Sunday, which is a very special day, as we all know what that means. Uh, also, just want to tell you that Pastors Rob and Mary Beth, for, for your first-time visitors, there are senior pastors. They are out of town this weekend, but I can tell you they long to be here. That's one thing I can say about them. We've known them for years, and I can tell you that Rob loves to preach, and he does a good job at it. So he actually misses being here, and uh, of course they miss all of you as well. So welcome. Um, this morning, I just... I want to start off talking to you about two concepts uh, that we see throughout Scripture, uh, not only in Scripture, but just throughout the history of mankind, as we see in secular history and biblical history. Um, the first concept is that there is a divine plan that's been unfolding since the beginning of time. This plan began when God spoke creation into being and, and placed mankind into the garden. And one of the places, but certainly not the only one, that we see a reference to this divine plan is in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, where Paul describes his plan as the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. You see, God had a purpose and a vision for us when he placed us in Eden. His vision was to co-rule this planet with his divine family, his heavenly beings, and his human family on earth. And God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 28 through 31, to be fruitful and multiply and thereby spread God's good rule over the rest of the planet. God wanted the whole earth to be a place where heaven and earth met, but the plan was delayed because he had given mankind the ability to choose. Since the fall, God has been in the process of restoring his original goal, his ultimate intention for his divine plan. So when we look at, uh, at the history of the nation of Israel or, or the other nations from history up until this day, we see that his divine plan is being fulfilled behind the scenes, whether we perceive it or not. The other concept I want to discuss with you today is the telos of God. For many, life is a journey with no destination. The ancient Greeks described history as an endless cycle of events, perpetually moving but never arriving. Like the Greeks, modern man drifts and he's anchorless through life, experiencing and responding to each of the circumstances as it appears on the horizon, but really never getting anywhere. For the Christian, however, every event, past, present, and future, moves towards a goal. Nothing is aimless. God causes all things to work together to accomplish His purpose, as we see in Romans 8.28. To explain this concept, the New Testament uses a Greek word called telos. The meaning of this word is end or a goal, result, completion, or fulfillment. You see, history moves not in circles, but straight toward the end of all things, as we see in 1 Peter 4.7. We also see this concept in Matthew 24, 14, where Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The telos. So history marches towards the climax of time. 
toward the complete fulfillment of God's purposes. When mankind finally nears the finish line, it will be, he will find that the end is not a place, but a person. See, Jesus Christ is the telos. He is the end. Everything is heading towards him. We see this in Revelation 21.6. He says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. So our lives are marked by the telos of God. God is always preparing you for what he has prepared for you according to his telos for your life. Within the concept of telos, we also need to recognize that the biblical view of time is opposite to the secular human view of time. You see, the secular human view of time sees time as always leaving us. It's always escaping us. We feel that we're always running out of time. I don't know about you, but I feel that quite often. So every birthday is, is saying to us we have less and less time. But the biblical view of time, on the other hand, get this, sees time as coming to us. That there is a fulfillment of time. A time is always marked by what God is doing on his kingdom calendar. So this happens both, both universally and individually in our lives. So all creation is heading toward a time of fulfillment or a telos of God's plan. So as we delve into our text today for Palm Sunday, reading out of John 12, we will see the telos of God coming to fruition in Jesus. Palm Sunday represents a marker moment in the telos of God's plan as Jesus marches towards the cross, the real ultimate triumph. You see, when Jesus entered humanity into history, to the untrained eye, his path seemed random. But he traveled toward one destination, one end goal. He knew that his way led directly and purposefully to the cross, where he gave up his life to redeem the human race from sin. And nearing the end of his hours on the cross, he cried, Tetelestai, which means it is finished. So he reached his telos. He had perfectly fulfilled the goal or the telos his father had set for him to do. Looking at our uh, text today, the, a little bit of background before we get into it. Our, our main text is out of John 12. And in John's chapters 1 through 11, John has finished recording the events of Jesus' public ministry and his signs. Jesus' last sign was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This sign served to put things in motion that we pick up on in chapter 11 where we see that the Sanhedrin made a decisive judicial decision to arrest and kill Jesus because of his gain in popularity and because many started to believe in him. Their primary reason for making this decision is found in John 11:48, where we see them discussing the, the uh, dilemma of Jesus' popularity. We'll read it. If, it says, if we let him go on like this, this is Caiaphas talking, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So in other words, they were afraid of losing their political power and control. So the drama of John's account of Jesus' life has now taken really a critical turn. We also see Caiaphas, the high priest that year, without really understanding the full implications of what he's saying, prophesied Jesus' substitutionary death saying that it was not for the nation only, meaning the nation of Israel, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. We see in verse 52 that John is foreshadowing the plan or the telos of God by bringing the, quote, other children of God who are scattered abroad back to him. These children of God who are scattered abroad are the, 
the Gentile nations. We'll look at that a little bit later. So due to the ju judicial decision by the Sanhedrin, word kind of gets out and Jesus withdraws to the region of Ephraim. As we read in chapter 1154, where it says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region of the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So you could kind of get a sense of the time of fulfillment beginning to ramp up a notch. On the one hand, the demonic forces think they're about to foil God's divine plan by killing Jesus. On the other hand, what Satan doesn't know is that God's plan is being carried out in a most precise way. You see, even Satan has to bend to God's telos. Either way, you can now sense the intensity picking up as we begin in John chapter 12. And we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 8. Where it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of, the, one of the ones reclining at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. But Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So we see that as a Passover approaches, Jesus returns to Bethany from Ephraim, and he remains with the family of Lazarus, Martha and Mary. And as you can imagine, their family was most likely living really with a keen sense of fear and, and dreading the tragedy of Jesus' arrest that seems to be imminent because a word had really gotten out. The timing of Jesus' arrival at Bethany six days before Passover places the onset of Passover on the Thursday night on the following week. So remember, Jewish days start just after dusk. This means that his arrival at Bethany is late Friday, just as the Sabbath begins. And the meal described in verse 2 probably refers to a meal on Saturday evening following the close of the Sabbath, since by then the word of Jesus' arrival would have spread through the village and the people would be free to travel. At any rate, it's an important meal, indicated really by them reclining at the table, because in early Palestine, the Jews reclined at the table, and that was a, at an important meal or a formal meal. So Jesus, uh, excuse me, this meal was attended by many who wanted to honor Jesus publicly and remember the great event of Lazarus' life. The gesture of Mary anointing Jesus with pure nard is really quite astonishing. Even though Judas objects, Jesus calls it a pleasing expression of devotion. You see, nard was a rare and precious spice imported from northern India. And the Latin writer Pliny gives us full description of it in his book, Natural History. In it, he describes nard as a shrub whose leaves and shoots were harvested and taken by caravan to the west. Sometimes it was mixed with its own root to increase its weight. However, Mary's gift was called pure nard, which means that it had nothing added to it. Pliny writes that it had a sweet scent. And many said that the uh, nard was probably smelling like uh, gladiolia 
perfume. So that's like a great smell to me. I don't know about you, but it was a very sweet aroma. Also, a pound of spice would have been huge and lavish. Its value of 300 denarii was equal to one year's wages for a day laborer. In fact, cheaper nard would have cost 100 denarii per pound depending on its origin. So in other words, whether it came from Gaul or Crete or Syria. This means that Mary had purchased the very best nard. And because of this, many speculated that Mary was wealthy. We also see that Mary anoints Jesus generously, not simply his feet, as we see in verse 3, but also his head, as we read in Mark's account in chapter 14, verse 3, where, where it says, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So Mark says Mary broke the flask when she poured it. This act actually refers to her breaking the stopper seal at the top of the flask. In fact, the quantity was so great that the entire house was filled with its fragrance, which again underscores the great extravagance of this gift. You see, John emphasizes Jesus' feet to show the sheer act of humble devotion on Mary's part. Also, the fact that she uses her hair to dry his feet was actually quite unusual for that time because women didn't let their hair down in public. And the only one who saw a woman's hair was her husband. So this indicates that Mary was acting with abandon, extravagant abandon, and probably hoping that the close circle of friends would actually understand what she was doing. But Jesus defends Mary in verse 7. He defends her extravagance by saying, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The idea here is that Jesus no doubt meant that she had kept this perfume for some later use, but now unknowingly she has kept it for his embalming. So Jesus has now been figuratively prepared for burial as he, as he heads towards the day of his death and glorification. You can imagine that Jesus' garments were probably covered with a strong, sweet scent of nard. In fact, it was likely that he kept his scent on his body through the following week. When he was suffering the anguish of the crucifixion, Mary's gift remained. It was the truly, last truly beautiful fragrance he smelled as he went to the cross. That's just a beautiful picture to me. Can you imagine? Because think about what smells do for us, the emotions they elicit. And yet this was a smell he carried with him all the way to the cross. So John uses this account of Mary's anointing of Jesus to point us forward. Mary asks no questions, but gently begins to prepare her Lord for the grave. Mary actually accepted Jesus' humble mission long before Jesus' leading disciples actually even understood it. So we see in this text an unknowingly extravagant devotion to Jesus about God's telos, brought about God's telos in her life. So Mary didn't realize what she was doing and what it signified truly, but it brought about God's telos, not only in her life, but in Jesus' life. This is true of us today as we walk in extravagant devotion to Jesus. God's telos will be fulfilled in our lives. We don't make it happen. It just happens because we're seeking Him first. Let's continue reading in verses 9 through 11. In chapter 12, it says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. <laughs> so, so the report that Jesus was back in Bethany prob 
provided an opportunity for, quote, the large crowd of Jews to come and to see him. Many came from Jerusalem since it was so close to the Feast of Passover. Also, we can uh, assume that the public nature of Lazarus and his sister's dinner in honor of Jesus drew the crowds as well. Now, there is a double reason to see Jesus. Not only is Jesus in Bethany, but they can see Lazarus too. You see, Lazarus has become such a catalyst for a new faith in Jesus, as we see in verse 11. But unfortunately, now Lazarus is on the radar of the Sanhedrin. And this causes the Sanhedrin to determine that Lazarus too must die, which is actually a little bit humorous to me. Think about it. They wish to return Lazarus to the place he belongs, the grave. And no doubt, from Lazarus' perspective, it's a plot that has been emptied of its threat. Because Lazarus now knows the power of Jesus over the grave. Amen. What is true of Lazarus is true of our lives as well. The power of Jesus over our circumstances fulfills the telos of God for our lives. Now John's account shifts to what many translations label the triumphal entry. In fact, your Bible probably has that as a heading. Little do they know at the time the real triumph that's coming. Again, keep in mind the plan that God has set in order from the beginning, the intensity of this time, you can feel it picking up. So let's continue reading our text, picking up in verses 12 through 19. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and had raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world is going after him. So in verse 12, John references the next day which indicates that it's now Sunday of the Passover week. Also, John references the large crowd, which is made up of pilgrims who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So an interesting note concerning an estimate of the size of the crowds that were most likely attending the feast come from Josephus, the historian. Josephus describes one Passover uh, just before the Jewish war of A.D. 66-70 where 2.7 million people took part. That's quite a crowd. And this wasn't counting the defiled and the foreigners who were present in the city. And even if these numbers are inflated, the crowds were undeniably immense. The assumption in this verse and in, in verse 13 is that Jesus was met on the road from Bethany by pilgrims who had already reached Jerusalem and who went out to meet him once they heard that he was approaching. Many of these pilgrims would have been Galileans who were familiar with his ministry. Others would have heard of the raising of Lazarus. So we can expect that many of these crowds were also living on the outskirts of the city in what they call the Kidron Valley, which is really it's the valley that separates uh, from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was crossing the crest of the mountain, these crowds joined him already 
that joined the crowds that were actually already accompanying him. So it's important to keep in mind the significance of these crowds. The very social dynamic of the crowds well in Jerusalem at this time was immense. The city could not contain the population, and as a result, thousands of people lived on the hillsides of the country as he was walking in. The crowds would have brought much tension to the leadership of the city, as you can imagine, who knew that any social disruption began at a festival could potentially explode violently. So you're getting the sense of these huge crowds. Continuing in verse 13, the intensity is beginning to pick up. You can feel God's time frame marching forward. It's, it's also important to note the symbolism of the palm branches here. Palm, uh, palms by this time have become a symbol of Jewish nationalism. When the temple was rededicated during the Maccabean era, uh, palms were used in, in the celebration. We see this in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. During both the major wars with Rome, reliefs of palms were actually stamped on the coins minted by the rebels who were fighting against Rome. So this act of celebration is by no means neutral. It symbolized Israel's natural, uh, national hopes now focused on Jesus as they hailed him as he entered the city. They cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna means give salvation now. And the, the suffix here, na, expresses intense emotion. So they weren't just passively yelling out. I mean, this was intense. This is also a term of praise. Every Jew would have known its occurrence in Psalms 118.25 because Psalms 118 is part of what they call the Hallel. Uh, which includes the groupings of Psalms of 113 through 118. And these, these Psalms were actually praise Psalms recited at most Jewish holidays as an act of praise and thanksgiving. And we see in Psalms 118.25 it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. The words following were also drawn from Psalms 118 where it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a blessing conferred on a pilgrim heading up to Jerusalem. The Greek text here actually indicates that the crowds are not merely pronouncing a blessing in the name of the Lord on the one who comes, but they are actually pronouncing a blessing on he who comes in the name of the Lord. The emphasis here is he. So in other words, he who comes is the Messiah. The next line in verse 13 say, saying, even the king of Israel, actually confirms that the crowd understands their own words to have messianic implications. So another interesting note about the, the phrase, even the king of Israel. This phrase was actually used by Palestinian Jews for the Messiah, and John uses it in several places in his letter earlier. However, Jesus did not quickly adopt this title for himself. As this expression was in a popular mind, largely tied to expectations of a political liberator. Yet Jesus was the promised king, even if he would have to explain it, that his kingdom was not of this world. As we read in John 18.36, where Jesus says to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So we see that this scene was overflowing with Jewish political fervor. The palms, the entry, the cries all remind us of what happened in John 6, 14 through 15. This is where Jesus fed the 5,000 and the crowd announced that Jesus, the prophet who is to come into the world, and they, and they recognized that at that time, but then they immediately attempted to take him by force and make him king. 
Jesus was misunderstood then, and he's misunderstood now. The Lazarus miracle that fuels the crowd's enthusiasm is now twisted into some kind of, you know, linked to some kind of political aspirations. But this is what, not what Jesus came for. Continuing in verse 14 through 15, it seems that Jesus arranges for the young donkey self-consciously fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus riding in on a donkey immediately after the roar of the crowd actually had the effect of dampening down their nationalist expectations. In other words, he doesn't enter Jerusalem on a war horse, which would have really easily whipped the political aspirations of the large crowds into an insurrectionist frenzy. Instead, he chose to present himself as king and a king who comes in peace, humble and mounted on a donkey. I find it absolutely amazing that God had a plan from long ago and he knew the fervor of the crowd's expectations for Jesus to be their king would need to be dampened. And so God arranges by his telos for Jesus to ride in on a donkey instead of a war horse to suppress the crowd's expectations. So continuing in the text, we see John uses the phrase fear not in place of rejoice greatly as quoted from Zechariah 9.9. Some scholars believe that John was borrowing from Isaiah 40, verse 9, where the text is addressed to one who brings good tidings to Zion. This was not uncommon for New Testament quotations from the Old Testament to be derived from two or more passages. So reading in Isaiah 40, verse 9, it says, Go up on the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Amen. The phrase, the phrase a daughter of Zion, in, in John 12, 15, was actually a common term used for Jerusalem, taken directly from Zechariah 9, 9. However, the rest of the quotation in verse 15 is actually an abbreviation of Zechariah 9, 9. But to fully understand this New Testament quotation of Zechariah, the entire Old Testament context must be borne in mind for the full force of the words to be recognized and understood. So we see in Old Testament, the Old Testament concept, we find that in the following verses in Zechariah 9 and, and it's in 10 and 11, where God further promises, He said, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That river is the river Euphrates. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So from these verses, we can glean the following points. Number one, the coming of the gentle king is associated with the ending of war. This was understood by John as essential to the work of Jesus in such a way that he can never be reduced to an enthusiastic zealot. Number two, the coming of the gentle king is associated with a proclamation of peace to the nations, extending his reigns to the ends of the earth. Number three, the coming of the gentle king is associated with the blood of God's covenant that spell release for prisoners. That's why you and I are in here today. 
This same theme is associated with the Passover and with the death of the servant king that lies immediately ahead. So in wrapping up this section of the text, we will look at verse 19 where the Pharisees say, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So it's clear that the scene is portrayed uh, in verses 12 through 19 is really a tense scene. And it conveys the potential explosiveness of the crowds. Even the Pharisees notice the fervor of the crowds and are greatly concerned. So they decide to keep their peace until a more appropriate moment. In fact, the Pharisees fear that instead of getting weaker, Jesus is actually going from strength to strength and getting more and more popular to the point that they are concerned their political stability is being even more threatened and it's becoming more and more fragile. But it is in this fear that the Pharisees comment, the world has gone after him. Now by the world, the Pharisees mean everyone in Jerusalem area, including the pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean basin and beyond. But the world in Greek is the word cosmos, where the reference is to people everywhere without racial distinction, but who are lost and in rebellion against God. So this underscores God's telos, and therefore Jesus' mission, which is to save the world, the cosmos, as we read in John 3, 16 through 17, where he says, For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And in verse 17, it says, For God did not send His Son into the world or the cosmos to condemn the world, but in order that the cosmos might be saved through Him. God had a lot bigger scope. It is noteworthy that John records the words of the Pharisees, the world has gone after Him, as really a perfect introduction into the next section of Scripture, beginning in verse 20, where he states that some Greeks who request to meet Jesus really trigger the onset of the hour. So let's pick up in verses 20 through 23. Now among those who are, went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in, in Galilee, and, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So in verse 20, the term used for Greeks has been debated by scholars. Some have argued that these Greeks were Greek-speaking Jews, such as the scattered Jews of the uh, Diaspora. But John uses a term that is actually different, and it indicates he's referring to Gentiles who come from any part of the Greek-speaking world. So it's highly likely that these Greeks were God-fearing since John states, states that they actually went up to worship at the feast. In fact, it, it is possible that they were proselytes who were considered fully-fledged converts to Judaism and who would have been permitted to actually go in and worship with the Jews. Nonetheless, the interest of these Greeks in Jesus may have come from gossip spreading through the city or from his cleansing of the temple earlier and captured in other Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But for John, it's their theological symbolism that's important here. These God-fearers represented the scattered children of God, as we see in John 11:52. In this verse, again, where Caiaphas, the high priest, says in referring to Jesus' death and its meaning, that it was, quote, not for the nation only, meaning Jerusalem, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It was this verse 
the Greek shows clear implications that the children of God who are scattered abroad refers to non-Jewish people groups. In other words, the Gentiles. They also are the other sheep of John 10.16 where we read Jesus' words. And he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So the Greeks asked to see Jesus. The Greek meaning of this term to see in this context means to have an interview with. We don't know what they were wanting to ask him, but the point is, is that Jesus has now gained the attention of the Gentiles, even though his ministry has been to the Jews up until this point. The Greek seeking to see Jesus has become for Jesus really a signal that his hour has come. This signal triggers Jesus in verse 23 to now declare the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now dramatically, the request of the Greeks means that something has changed. The Greeks signal a closing of a chapter for Jesus. His ministry in Judaism is finished, and now he belongs to the wider world. You see, up until this point, the hour has always been some future event. Many times we have uh, listened to Jesus say, the hour has not yet arrived. We see this throughout the Gospels. The hour is nothing less than the appointed time, the telos, for Jesus to return to the Father through his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his exaltation. From this point onward until the passion, the hour is the imminent prospect. We see here that being sensitive to the timing of God can reveal the hour of God's telos for our, our lives. Now from this time, Jesus gives an extended explanation and insight into the meaning of what this hour is. Jesus begins by offering a parable that explains the law of the kingdom. We pick up on this in verses 24 through 26. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Amen. 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 In verse 24, Jesus uses the phrase, truly, truly. This phrase was typically used before an utterance to confirm and emphasize really the trustworthiness and the importance of what I'm about to say. We also see here Jesus is using a farming parable representing what he must go through to produce this fruit. The seed must die in order to give life. Likewise, Jesus must die in order to give life to the world. The same law applies to his disciples then and today. So to relinquish one's hold on life, to give it up, is the key to participation in the telos of God's kingdom for your life. Matthew captures the same idea in Matthew 10, 39, where Jesus says, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm reminded of a quote from the late Billy Graham that captures this thought. He says, When you are prepared to die, then you are fully prepared to live. When you are prepared to die, then you are fully prepared to live. See, we live loosely attached to this world. We're citizens of another kingdom. The kingdom seems to be counterintuitive. 
God calls us to die to ourselves in order to truly live, but her natural inclination is to preserve our lives, our pleasures, our desires. We think that this is really living, but it's not. This life is not about us anymore. Once we make the choice to follow Jesus, our life is no longer ours. We belong to Christ. We see this clearly in Colossians 3.3 where it says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again in Galatians 2.20 it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Another famous person that captures this idea is my wife. These are brownie points here. No, but it's really true. She likes to say we are living for something worth dying for. Amen. We are living now for something worth dying for. So in other words, this life in the kingdom is worth everything. It is the pearl of great price. There's actually nothing else that matters. If we truly relinquish our hold on this life, then the things that do matter will be taken care of anyways because they will be of our Father's heart. In the last verse of this section, in verse 26, Jesus says that whoever serves him must follow him and that where he is, his servant will be also. So in other words, we must make Christ's purpose our purpose. We are to seek the things above where Christ is seated, as Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In verse 2 it says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So since our lives are hidden with Christ and God, and since Jesus is enthroned in heaven, our thoughts and our hearts should be connected to heaven also. The word seek here marks, uh, essentially marks aspiration or desire and strong passion. So in order to seek these things, the mind must be set on them. Amen. Amen. So in closing today, God has a telos for history. He had a telos for His Son. And He has a telos for His children. Each of us carries a blueprint of God's telos. He is always preparing you for what He has prepared for you. Interestingly enough, Mark Twain says, There are two great days in a person's life. The day we are born and the day we discover why. Now, I kind of doubt Mark Twain had the telos of God in mind here, but his insight is still very poignant. I want to encourage you today, there's been a price paid. The final telos for Jesus on this earth was the cross, which will be discussed next Sunday on Easter Sunday. But there is a time of fulfillment in your life. Set your mind on things above. Devote your life to Jesus and you will always be moving toward the telos of God for your lives. See, there is a plan and we all play a part in this plan. I want to leave you with the following scripture from Paul. In Philippians 3.14, he says, I press on toward the gold for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. May all of us press on towards the telos of God for our lives. May we all get focused. I heard it referred to one time as a wartime mentality. You know, I tell you what, and no time to go into it here, but God has taken my wife and I and our family on a journey of trust that I probably would have never chosen to take had I known what it entailed.
But I could tell you on the other side of that journey, and God has spoken to us before, and He said, I'm going to take you from a false security to a total dependency on me. And I could have never told you what that meant until I went through it. But I can tell you now, my trust is in Him. I can tell you that through those times, the things that we thought mattered became nothing. It really was a wartime mentality of, wow, this is what life's about. And my aim is to live the rest of my days. As, um, as we look at King David in Acts, it said he fulfilled his purpose for this life, and then he went to lay with his fathers. That's my prayer, is that I, my wife, my children, all that are around me, we live our purpose in this life, to tell us of God for our lives, and then we go to see Him. Amen? I can't think of a more uh, appropriate time.